Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 3rd of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As you know, rank and file Gardaí are very unhappy with their terms and conditions of employment. About €2 billion Euros has been allocated to Angola Shikona this year, Deputy. Uh, that's unprecedented. Uh, it'll allow for ongoing recruitment of new Gardaí and Garda staff. As, as at the end of July of 2023, there were 13,943 Garda members across the country. Uh, now, <clears throat> that's an increase over previous years, uh, although there was a problem during COVID, as we know, in terms of Templemore and training. Garda are very concerned about recruitment and retaining members of the force, but since COVID, the government says it is a situation that has been improving. Numbers in Templemore continue to increase now, uh, attestations every three months. 135 trainees entered a training college in February, another 154 in May, another class of 174, the largest class since COVID, entered a college at the end of July, continuing to building momentum and recruitment. Um, and so there is about 470 now um, in active training. Two more classes are due into Templemore in October. Um, so we're on track to having between 700 and 800 new recruits into the college in 2023. That said, morale is on the ground and Gardaí have a very long list of problems they believe are being mismanaged. Their biggest concern is a plan to return to pre-COVID rosters at uh, the beginning of next month. The issue around the Garda roster, um, which was introduced by the Commissioner, is clearly... Um, an issue that has caused considerable uh, um, unrest and, and concern within the ranks of Angarda Shikana. Today, members of uh, the Garda Representative Association say they won't be working overtime because they say the rosters must be changed, a position supported by the Commission on the Future of Policing. You mentioned the, fu- the Commission on the Future of Policing. It recommended changes to rosters and so on. But in my view, these issues are best resolved within the industrial relations mechanisms. And that's where they should be resolved. That's the Tanisha. Michal Martin speaking in the Dáil last week. Let's speak uh, this morning to Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. And a very good morning to you, Tara, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. There's reports in the papers today that Garda management have told the government that there won't be any problem in terms of policing over the course of uh, the next five weeks. And if necessary, you your members will be ordered to work overtime. Morning, Michael. Morning to your listeners. Um, yeah, look, we, we would have expected the Garda management would have issued um, directions such as that. Um, it's clear, or oh, need to be clear, that um, it's voluntary overtime that our members will not be engaging in over the five Tuesdays in October. So that's overtime where a member, you know, puts themselves forward, you know, themselves to actually do the overtime. So it's, it's voluntary overtime that our members will not actually be engaging in. 
Now, that's usually what overtime is, is it not? Mm. Well, from time to time, depending on the exigencies of the service and, and certain events that are on, such as, let's say, a uh, president, presidential visit or, you know, things like, you know, serious, mm. uh, you know, issues around the country. We, we think back to the flak hole that would have happened in Drogheda uh, down through the years. Um, members would have been directed mm. to take up they, yeah, Of course, I mean, they'd be exceptional mm. circumstances. But generally what we're talking about now is a, a withdrawal uh, of your service for voluntarily uh, putting yourself forward for overtime. The headquarters is saying that you may be ordered to do that overtime if uh, people are needed, if boots are needed on the ground. Well, as I said, we would have expected that, that management mm. would have responded. Um, Will you obey like those that. orders? Will your members obey those orders? Or what instruction are you giving to them? Well, we're not giving any instructions to our members. You know, as a, as a representative association, we won't be directing our members to engage in, in any type of, of action. These decisions are decisions that each individual member of Angarda Shea will make themselves. Of course, if our members are directed to take up overtime, as long as that overtime... Um, complies with working time agreements as long as our members have been given sufficient rest periods because obviously we are guided by the working time agreement in relation to the hours we do and the many hours we can do in a, in a particular period. So as long as those directions are in compliance with the working time agreement, our members will take up that overtime. But it's the voluntary overtime where members put themselves forward, you know, with, with goodwill to, to back up their members. It's important to note, my, Michael, that of all the overtime that is done around the country, over 20% of that overtime is used just to backfill vacancies that occur as a result of people being out sick, people being in court, people being on courses, maternity leave, all that sort of stuff. Mm. So over 20% of the overtime that our members voluntarily take up is simply to backfill the vacancies that are there all of the time because, obviously, of a well-publicised retention and recruitment crisis that mm. we're currently going through. And as we heard the Tonish just say a moment ago, COVID compounded that and that uh, things have improved since then and that by next year there could be an additional 800 Gardaí on the beat. Well, look, that would be fantastic. You know, at the beginning of the year, the Minister and the Commissioner promised us a 1,000 Gardaí. It was very clear from the outset that that target was not going to be met. We would be still very dubious as to whether the current target of 800 is going to be met for this year. You know, we're we're very doubtful that that's going to happen. But I suppose that the narrative out there is that people just don't want to join the Guards. You know, they they don't see it as a job for life. They look at the pension that they're going to take up on retirement and it essentially plummets them into poverty. They look at their salary. But more importantly, we have a new generation which just wants a better work-life balance. Mm. We have a new generation of, of younger people that are not happy to take a job that they're dictated to how they work and that they have, you know, very inflexible working tours. And that's what we're trying to achieve here through this whole issue in relation to the rosters. Our members like the four-on-four-off. They find it gives them stability. It's better for work-life balance. It's particularly better for relationships where you have both couples or both people in a relationship working in a Gardaí And it just gives our members that bit more... Uh, predictability. Okay, so, so that's why, why not negotiate, negotiate that? Uh, as uh, we heard the Tonisha say, as we've heard the Minister of Justice say, uh, I think it's the stock answer from uh, government representatives at this stage. Uh, go to the industrial arms of the state, enter into talks with uh, the Workplace Re- Relations Commission. Uh, don't try to dictate this yourself because to some people it, it sounds like the tail is trying to wag the dog. I appreciate that. I suppose our issue is that the Commissioner has put a precondition on entering these negotiations, and that precondition is the 6th of November deadline to revert people back to the pre-COVID roster. Now, with the best will in the world, Michael, if we were to come up in the morning 
with a roster that suited both ourselves, that suited the other guard associations and suited the commissioner, it would not be possible to, for the four associations to ballot their members and get back the mandate to go ahead or not go ahead, as the case may be, with a roster. It's not possible for all of that to be done. As I said, even if it was agreed in the morning, it could not be done before the 6th of November. So what we're asking is take that date off the table, defer it, allow us to get in, allow us to start negotiating, allow us to ballot our members on whatever decision is made around that table. But don't have that precondition of the 6th of November hanging over people. Essentially, you're saying to people, regardless of what we get at the negotiating table, you're going to have to go back to the pre-COVID roster on the 6th of November, and maybe three weeks later, we might have to move you on to another roster. That's unfair. That is extremely unfair on people who are trying to plan their lives, who are trying to organise childcare, who are trying to organise events in, in their private life. What we're asking is, remove that precondition of the 6th of November, and absolutely, we are 100% committed at that stage to sitting around the table and coming up with a proposed solution. So, you're refusing to work overtime, but what impact will that have? Will it have any effect at all, in fact, if you're going to work overtime, despite refusing to work overtime, when and if you're ordered to work overtime? Well, as I said, that overtime, if it is directed, will have to comply with certain conditions in relation to the working time agreement. So we will have to wait and see if that is the case and if that actually happens. Um, today, I would expect that people who are looking for the guards might find that if their call is not of an emergency situation, uh, that they might not get the response time that they're looking for or they might not get guardie, you know, fully available as, as they would want mm. them to be. Obviously, Is it a good day to rob a bank? I don't think so, Michael. Uh, emergency calls will obviously still be dealt with with the same rigour and the same um, commitment that our members always you know, commit to those calls. Mm, OK, what about uh, the two days of concern in uh, the coming weeks? Uh, the budget this day next week will be announced and uh, it seems as though there'll be a lot of people out there protesting and given what's happened over the last couple of weeks, there'll be concerns uh, about that. And then, of course, Halloween. Uh, can... Uh, enough members of your force be directed to work overtime at odds with your industrial action uh, and in line uh, with uh, the working time directive uh, that you've mentioned? Well, obviously, I can't comment on what decisions Garda management are going to make to police those two particular events. I suppose as an association, we just have to wait and see um, what the response is from Garda management. We are meeting the commissioner this Thursday, uh, the GRA, on our own as an association. So we would hope that there would be some sort of development there but we will have to wait and see how that meeting actually goes okay and then we get to the 10th of november what happens then tara what happens is that the 160 delegates that attended our conference last week each stood up and made a decision that they would withdraw their labor on the 10th of november now that's an individual decision for every member of angarda shia to make themselves as an association we will not be given instructions or any sort of directions to members to make that decision it is entirely a decision for each individual member of Angarda Shea to make but the 160 delegates that did attend conference last week they all got up and made the decision that they would each withdraw their labour on the 10th of November um, Will you supr- be surprised if more of your members because you represent uh, 11,000 members of the force would you be surprised if more of your members uh, hundreds if not thousands withdrew their labour as well? I wouldn't be surprised at all, um, to be quite honest, Michael. I mean, I've spoken to you and your listeners quite often in the last number of weeks and months, and it's quite clear we have a serious issue within Angarda Shikana with regards to morale, with regards to our members feeling extremely frustrated, annoyed, upset, 
feeling there's a huge disconnect between them and the management team of the, the Commissioner, Drew Harris. So you look at, we'll have to wait and see what happens on the 10th of November, but certainly, you know, the, the, the whisperings I've been heard around and, and people are sp- talking about it and are very supportive mm. um, of the GRA and very supportive of what we're trying to achieve, which is simply flexible working arrangements for our members and better conditions for them to work under. Right, we're back uh, to the kind of conversation we had during the blue flu, aren't we? Uh, where it's a, a formula of words that you're using to describe a, a strike. You call it a, a withdrawal of labour, which will happen on a given date, a named date, the 10th of November, uh, which has been organised uh, by 160 uh, delegates at your conference. Uh, to anybody, in anybody's language, that's strike action. Uh, but it's illegal. Uh, it's against the law for you to go on strike. Yeah, it, 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 well, uh, obviously we don't have union status, so for that particular reason, yeah, we, we can't ask our members to strike. And, and as you correctly said, um, it is an offence under the Garda Shia Khan Act. We are not asking our members to strike. We are not asking our members to withdraw their, 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 withdraw their labour. That is a decision that each individual member of Garda Shia Khan will make for themselves. Mm. As I say in anybody else's words that is a a strike which is against the law uh, which would be taken by uh, members of uh, the police force whose job it is to uphold the law Well as I said we're we're, we're certainly not going to call it a strike and it is it is that decision that each individual member of Angarda Sheikhan will make. But let's be clear, Michael, that's over six weeks ago. We would be very hopeful that it's not going to come to that. You know, our, our priority is the public and providing the public with the service that they require, with the service that they deserve. And we would really hope we're a solution-based organisation. We would really hope before that date comes anywhere near there that we will have in some way move the situation on and we will see some sort of a light at the tunnel but the situation is quite bleak at the moment and it's really important that we sit down with the commissioner and that he removes that precondition of the 6th November so that we can start meaningful conversations around developing a new roster. Okay, can you accept that uh, people will see it the way that uh, I've described it, the way I've outlined it and uh, that for those people who do see it that way that they'll be uh, upset if not annoyed by that uh, and the idea that 11,000 Gardaí are whispering to each other about the 10th of November and a certain amount of them will withdraw their labour and it might be a good day to rob a bank that day, uh, that's going to cause an awful lot of concern, isn't it? I I can fully understand that members of the public would be concerned, but as I said, we would be hopeful that it's not going to come to that. What I will say is we have been, you know, very overwhelmed by support by the public so far, who seem to be very much on our side. If if any of the media reports over the weekend and various polls would show that the media are on our side, or sorry, that the the public are on our side, and, you know, do support their local guardie, do support the work that we do, their understanding of the, the conditions that we work under and the hours that we work and, and the actual jobs that we're actually sent out to do. So that the public are, seem to be very much uh, on our side there. Most people out there have some friends or relatives, whatever, in Angarda Shikana and know the type of things and, and events that they are policing. So we're, we're hopeful that the public are on our side. Mm. Um, but as I said, we would be you know, very hopeful that the 10th of November and that withdrawal of labour won't actually ha- happen if we can get round that table between now and then and start to make some meaningful um, work on actually negotiating a new roster. OK, and uh, the result of your ballot uh, was completely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Do you expect everybody to uh, 
take this position today uh, when it comes to overtime? Um, some members of the force may not be able to afford to uh, turn down overtime. Absolutely, and that's another, I suppose, one of our issues is that our younger members who are on lower salaries and who find themselves living miles and miles away from where they actually work because of the cost of living crisis and because they can't afford to buy homes, they obviously depend on on that overtime to, to, to pay their bills. But again, as I said, Michael, and I have to keep reiterating, this is the individual choice of each member of Angardishi Econa, whether or not they actually want to withdraw from voluntary overtime and whether you know, the 10th of November comes, whether they want to actually withdraw their labour. It's an individual decision for each member of Angarda Shikana to, to decide whether or not they want to do that. Yeah, and that will be respected. It won't be seen as breaking a picket. Absolutely not. Absolutely mm. not. We're not a union. We're not directing anybody to take any sort of action at all. It's an individual decision for each member themselves to decide. All right. Well, the doll resumes today, and I'm sure we'll be hearing much more from government throughout the course of uh, the day uh, and indeed your membership. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning on this, the first day of some pretty dramatic industrial action by members of Garda Shiakana who are refusing to work overtime today and over the course of uh, the next five five Tuesdays until the 10th of November when they say that at least 160 out of the 11,000 members uh, will withdraw their labour individually on that day. Thanks to Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary of the GRA and if you want to comment on that or something else this morning give us a call 041-983-2000 is our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp us if you like. That's if you want to make a comment. 086-1800-658 is the number for a text or WhatsApp message. 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. The charity alone, which hopes uh, to help uh, people grow old in uh, this country with dignity, is publishing its annual report today. Grania Lochran, Senior Policy and Advocacy Officer with Alone, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Grania, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Your organisation uh, goes from strength to strength uh, and helped more people last year than ever before. In fact, over the course of your 45-year history. Absolutely. Thanks for having us on, Michael. Um, So last year, we supported um, more than 22,300 older people. Uh, That's the highest number we've ever supported. And we provided more than 25,500 unique supports. So what we're seeing really is increasing levels of demand for our services, uh, whether that's older people experiencing difficulties with loneliness, with housing, with finance. And Already um, for 2023, we've outstripped those numbers yet again. So what we're seeing is higher levels of demand as our population gets older. And uh, there's many reasons people uh, come to you uh, uh, and seek help, uh, whether that's with housing or, or loneliness, finance or health reasons for that matter. Absolutely. So we know now that loneliness levels are increasing across all age groups and Ireland has the unfortunate title now of being the loneliest uh, country in Europe. Um, We know as well that older people are increasingly experiencing housing difficulties. There's been an 83% increase in the number of older renters since the last census. And furthermore, health difficulties. Often we need to support older people to engage with things like home care or to access medical cards, GP visit cards, etc. So really we're there to provide that link in between the services that are there and the older person that needs them. 
and sometimes the demand for services um, across the board, really nationwide, is just so high that we do have to advocate for older people as well mm. to access the grants, to access the home care, because it's unfortunately not always there at the moment due to the increasing level of demand. Okay, and why is it, do you think, Grania, that Ireland is uh, the country that is the loneliest to grow old in? Uh, I thought we were the country of the Cade Meal of Falches. Absolutely, and I think it's something that would come as a shock or a surprise to many of us uh, to consider that we might be the loneliest country in Europe. Um, but EU Commission research has shown exactly that. that a lot, quite a high percentage of us are lonely most or all of the time. And I think part of that, and while they didn't go into the reasons for it, um, part of that is because we have such a high value on our communities and on our social relationships that when there's a dip in those, it's far, it's really important to us and it might impact us more than it might if we place less value in those, such as in other EU countries. Mm. So we know that community is really important to us mm. and it's something that we need to support and it doesn't happen uh, by accident. It needs to have the government support and the funding behind it uh, to ensure our communities are strong and can thrive is it to do with the way that we live in this country in comparison to other European countries uh, where people generally tend to live in uh, apartments where here we live in houses and quite often uh, out in the country people are, are living in isolated areas and may not see people for some time? Well, this is it. We do have different settlement patterns than other countries in Europe. And I suppose part of the difficulty um, now, especially for older people living in rural areas who might be in that isolated one-off housing, are things like transport, are things like access to services, um, things that uh, if you're living in an urban environment, if you're living in a town, if you're living in Drogheda, if you're living in Dundalk, it'll be a bit easier for you to access those. Um, but if you're living um, out more rurally in Meath or Lowe, for example, you know yourself it's quite mm. difficult to get public transport. So these are all things that have an impact. Mm. And uh, your volunteers visit people a, a lot and uh, you've befriending organisations and a lot of work you do in, in that sense. But uh, all of the work uh, that uh, alone does relies very heavily on volunteers, doesn't it? The, I suppose the, the truth of it is that we couldn't deliver our services without the support of our volunteers um, and the volunteers are really the group that I suppose provide that link uh, between older people and the services so last year we had uh, just under 5,000 volunteers, 4,956 uh, supporting our services and they gave more than 224,000 hours of support which is a huge number really uh, if you counted that in terms of paying, you know, literally minimum wage, it would be worth more than 2.5 million euros. Right. So this is uh, this is support that is invaluable. It's something that, you know, we could never pay people to give. It would never be sustainable. Uh, but our services really rely on them, whether that's through providing visits to older people once or twice a week, whether it's providing telephone support, where you're calling up an mm. older person or several older people uh, a couple of times a week to have a chat and to check in, whether it's delivering dinners on Christmas Day or at any of the other 
any of the other times that older people need that support. So this is something that really we couldn't survive without. Yeah, and it's something that so many people, so many older people in the country uh, would hate to have to survive without uh, and have great things to say uh, about alone really is uh, such a, an important organisation. And as you said earlier on, Gron, you, you advocate for older people as well. We're a week away from the budget. Uh, we're seeing reports today of a, a 12 euro increase in pensions. How do you think that is going to help people over the course of the next year? The truth is that 12 euro, a 12 euro increase is not nearly enough. Um, we know ourselves that the, I suppose, the cost of inflation, we all know how much our shopping has gone up on the trolley over the last year and the year before that as well. Uh, we would need an increase of at minimum €27.50 just to keep match with that inflation. Um, government has committed previously to benchmarking the pension to 34% of average earnings. Um, they've committed to it uh, for years now. We're still waiting for that to be introduced. Um, but really, older people need a lot more than €12 Euro this year. We're seeing increasing rates of poverty, increasing rates of financial difficulty, um, over the last year, we saw number of people approaching us in financial difficulty increase by more than six times. This is something that um, people people aren't going to be content with a five or here or a ten or there. Mm. Um, the problems run much deeper than that now. And we have this peculiar situation, at least it seems peculiar to me, uh, because it's a relatively new situation where older people are facing into homelessness. This is it, and this has increased um, in the last number of years. There's now um, more than double uh, the number of older people um, who are in homelessness than there were during Rebuilding Ireland. Um, This is something that as more older people are living in the private rental sector, uh, it's unfortunately very insecure accommodation. If an older person gets a notice to quit, um, they're often not attractive prospective tenants for landlords in when the private rental sector has such high competition at the minute um, and older people themselves report to us that you know if they're showing up to view and potentially with a walking stick or a rollator and they're there besides you know a young couple who are working who's the landlord going to pick so older people are really finding that housing difficulty more and more and unfortunately um we don't see those numbers coming down mm. anytime soon. Right. We expect the number of older renters to increase significantly in the years ahead. Okay, as I, I say, it uh, is uh, peculiar uh, to me, at least, that uh, people in their older years find themselves in, in that situation where homelessness is a real prospect. Uh, I'll give uh, your national support line if you don't mind. Um, uh, it's oh eight one eight treble two o two four. That's oh eight one eight treble two o two four. Many thanks, Gronia, for joining us on the program. Today. Today. Thanks so much, Michael. Grania Lochran, uh, Senior Policy and Advocacy Officer with Alone. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Examiner reported yesterday of a survey of uh, primary school principals, uh, 1,200 members of uh, the National Principals Forum, with 73% of uh, the principals saying 
they don't believe uh, they'll have enough money to run their schools over the course of the next year or so. Let's uh, speak to Seamus O'Connor of the National Principal Forum and a principal himself in Skullvreed and Middleton and Cork. And a uh, very good morning to you, Seamus, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, you're underfunded by the department, uh, to put it in very simple and plain terms. Yeah, I, I think it's very fair to say that across the board, like our group and myself in particular, we're not we're not principals who will come on and moan and groan because, as we know, there are families at need at this time, and there you know it's a there's a fiscal crisis that's affected everyone, particularly in the last year. However, look as as a body that represents families, as a body that supports children, um, you you have to recognise that there was a one-off payment paid last year to support schools in relation to cost of living crisis, but it. Unfortunately, that isn't coming. It isn't proposed to be coming again this year, and that is putting schools in severe crisis. Parallel to that, there were regular grants, i.e., um, there was an IT grant, and there's also uh, there was a substantial grant that was there to uh, to assist schools in relation to cleaning during the COVID period. That over the last four or five years have been consistently there and recorded to come out, and they have been stopped as well. Now, the IT grant was deferred, and that's fair. But I, I suppose when you when you add up the cost of living crisis, the cost of insurances, which across the board and every school has gone up between eighteen and twenty percent over the last two years, mm. and then you add in the fact that we had additional cleaning grants that have been taken away. You know, that's a substantial budget hole for for schools where. Look, at the end of the day, our priority shouldn't be worrying or concerned about budgets, but at this time for principals, according to the survey, as well as special ed issues, financial pressure is is a genuine burden for all schools across the country at this time. So what does that mean? What will it mean in effect for children in classrooms? Yeah. Realistically, what it'll mean is the parents or certain schools. Now, may I say that not all schools will find this difficulty, and I appreciate that. But in a large number of schools, particularly at at primary level, more pointedly, you know, you'll be looking for you know the the, the introduction of voluntary contributions, you know, the fiver and the envelope a week or whatever to contribute towards schools uh, and their general running costs. Mm. Right. Which, uh, again, no school wants. No do, school wants. Uh, and, uh, no, not at all. And we all know the complaints about voluntary contributions being exactly. obligatory. Yeah. And the Minister for Education has spoken numerous times about that, saying that they shouldn't be necessary, that she's uh, given that €90 million Euro in one-off additional funding, but she's also increased the capitation grant uh, at primary level by 30%, uh, which uh, would be €30 million, Euro, I think. Yeah, it's it's still less than a year uh, a day, and that's a fair point. And there has been increases and, and more sustained support from the department across the board. If you look at the summer provisions program that ran this year across the country, that was very well budgeted and, and very welcome to schools. And you also have to recognise that parents got the additional benefit this year of the free school book scheme, which again was highly welcomed by schools. But none of those contributed directly to supporting schools in relation to the day-to-day running costs, which have vastly increased over the last number of years. I suppose, to be fair, we're working off a lower base or a lower, lower margin anyway at primary school level, it must be noted that we'll say the average capitation per child in the year is about €83 Euro per child, where at, at secondary school level it's €190, Euro. so there's a huge discrepancy there straight away between primary and secondary. Mm. Why, why, um, why is no, that? I, uh, I mean, well, the capitation you know, grant is to pay for the light and the heat and that sort of thing, isn't it? So, so what's the it difference? Is, <laughs> Yeah, and Michael, that's a fair question. I suppose, to be honest, there's 3,200 primary schools and there's 700 secondary schools. Maybe that's an element of it. But what I would say is that there is a massive discrepancy between primary and secondary school level um, capitation grant spending. Mm. And it's very rare that you'll see a secondary school or secondary school unions coming out saying that the capitation for schools at their level is, is, is okay. insufficient. You have shorter school days, but uh, I'm not sure how much difference yeah. that would make in terms of the bills. Yeah. 
That's fair. Okay. Now, what a lot of schools are doing, Michael, to be honest, is they are trying to rent rooms and they are trying to, you know, generate capital internally by renting rooms or renting buildings stuff, and and that is appreciated, you know. Mm. Uh, and uh, that thirty million, uh, if that breaks down to one euro a, a day, you're talking about asking for five euro from parents. Uh, well, yeah. I presume that you would. You're be doubling saved. it. Yeah. Well, you're more than doubling it, are you not? Uh, yeah. You'd be looking for... Well, no, one, if, you're, if, you're, if you're saying that you've less than a euro a day, if you're asking for a five or a week, you're asking for a euro or a, a week, day. Or a week, I beg again, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, a week, yeah. And then what you're saying then is, to be honest, Michael, you, as you recognise, not every family in every school can contribute there, so you're trying to organise the shortfall through a kind of an aggregate system. But, look, what I would say is it's, it's, that's very much last chance or, or last um, point of... of, of of effort by schools to do that. I think that, that every school will try and manage the situation without having to do that. But, you know, Michael, on a simple level, when we, let's say here in my school in Cork, we have a large number of ASD classes and we're very proud of our Krishla set up, our Krishla centre. We have six special classes. So we have nine bus escorts and we're very proud of that. But we pay the bus escorts on a weekly basis and then claim the money back next June. So as you can imagine, for schools starting out with additional special classes or schools in general, that's a fair burden to have. It would be nice if the grant came in advance so that, you know, from a moving deck chairs perspective or for a financial arrangements perspective, that you're not paying out money that you don't have. Mm. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, that there's some schools that are in dire straits uh, where there's nothing in the bank account then? There are, and as our survey has shown, there is one of our colleagues in Donegal. Um, they had an influx of new children, which is fair, um, and those children had to be supported directly by the school, and to this point they haven't re- received additional capitation to support those children. Um, look, th- that isn't every case, to be mm. fair, Michael. There are a number of cases like that, but it wouldn't be every case in every yeah. school, to well, be fair. You'd hope but not, because that was, re- that was remarkable. They, they, they've sought yeah. a, a loan of €20,000 from their, their parish. Yeah. That's yeah. really incredible, yeah. It is, but I would say that there, even if there's 10 schools in the country, there's 3,200, that's 10 schools too many, and that's 10 colleagues of mine that I would, you know, I would like to support. Um, look, again, I am, from a balanced perspective, if you look at the free book, book scheme that came in this year, that was brilliant for parents, and we 100% endorse that, no more than the summer provision program that happened this yeah. year, which was opened up not only to children with additional needs, but children from DISH environments or children with additional academic needs. So mm. there is good work being done but I, I just feel that a prioritisation in this budget coming needs to be needs to be placed on supporting schools their their fiscal management side of it. Okay so parents uh, in these circumstances will be asked uh, for voluntary contributions if you don't receive the contributions yeah. you'll be left with uh, the option of not cleaning, not heating or not lighting the schools. Yeah, and just to draw back to, there was an additional cleaning grant that was given to every school in the country, both primary and secondary, during the time of COVID. Now, again, let's take my school for an example, Michael. We have two large buildings, and we, at present, we only have two cleaners. During the time, during that COVID grant period, uh, we had we were able to afford to have three cleaners. Now, wouldn't it be reasonable to say that if you have two very large buildings that have roughly 20 classrooms each, that you know three cleaners would be an adequate number? Like, there's a historical disparity there in relation to the amount of resources you get to run your school with versus what you actually get in reality um, and, and I suppose it's really come to fruition now the cost of living crisis particularly put a huge um, kind of really sh- shone a light on the, on the, the shortfall in relation to the budgets for schools um, so I suppose what we're calling for is the, the, the cost of living grant that was given to schools last year to immediately be reinstated for this year and then an overarching examination being done on the actual uh, capitation grants for schools 
Okay, an important week ahead. Thank you indeed for you, joining us on the programme today. Seamus O'Connor of the National Principals Forum, uh, who himself is a principal in Skull Vreed in Middleton in County Cork. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Barrett Information and Tracing Act was introduced one year ago. Let's hear how it's been working in practice. We're joined now by Colm O'Leary, who's the interim CEO of the Adoption Authority of Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Colm, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There's been a lot of people who've been waiting for legislation of this sort for many many years uh, and indeed uh, there had been some concern and a lot of discussion about the legislation and how it would work in practice. What can you tell us about your experience at the Adoption Authority over the course of the last year? Thank you Michael for having me on your show. Um, yes uh, it's been a busy year so this, this legislation that you've been talking about uh, gives birth, people who have adopted with access to their birth cert and their early life information. So it's an important piece of legislation and it corrects an injustice, if you like, out there that, birth, that people who adopted didn't have access. Um, so we've had a busy year in the last year where uh, in lots of people have applied, thousands, um, because, and they, they applied to two agencies, both ourselves, uh, the Adoption Authority and TUSLA, but I can only speak on our side uh, mm-hmm. in, in the Adoption Authority. So we received o- over 3,800 applications for people uh, from people looking for their birth information and looking for their early life information, medical information, anything they can find out about their about their early life. And we have processed all of our 36 of them this morning. So we're, we've got through that backlog. And there was a very big surge at the beginning. We had 40% of that 3,800 were received in the first week alone. So we've got better at, at, at responding to requests. And now the backlog is gone. So it's, it's a year on since that big uh, campaign where we had leaflets put into everybody's house and radio ads and TV ads. So we just want to bring it back into people's minds. If they haven't put in an application for their birth or early life information, now would be a good time because we can respond to you within the time frame. OK, and most of the people that you have heard from were adopted uh, rather than the birth parents. Yeah, so just to clarify that there are kind of three things, three services you can apply for on the website birthinfo.ie. So just that's an important website if you want to put in an application for your birth information, birthinfo.ie. So uh, you can apply for your birth or early life information. And that's what I've been just speaking about. You can, you, we've dealt with them in the vast majority, 99% of those requests. There are also, uh, you can also put yourself on what's called a contact preference register. And that's where adopted people and birth parents can put their details on this register, where they are now, what their contact details is. is a confidential register that people can put their information on and whether they will, they're happy to be contacted or whether they do not want to be contacted. Because let's face it, there might be people out there who gave up a child for adoption long, long ago, a different time in their lives. And they may have had a family in another, circum- in another situation and they don't want those two lives to meet and they put, can put their record up in the contact preference register mm. not to be contacted, and the authority will, res- will, will respect that decision. So that's the contact preference register, and lots of, the more people that put their names on that register, the more people that will be able to reun- re- re- reunify, um, and there are only 17,000 people on that register at the moment, and we would like to, to increase that, at least double it in due course. 
And um, we've had 254 matches in the last year. Uh, that's people who have found uh, a birth parent or a sibling, uh, and that's a very significant event. Sometimes a person might put in a request for to trace their parent, and that's the third service that we're offering, a tracing service for a person who knows they're adopted and can tell us, I was in such a mother and baby home or I was adopted through such a society or guild. We can trace their birth parent and and make a, 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 a create a reunion or allow a reunion to happen. That sometimes happens wherever you have a reunion, but sometimes we might write to the home in which the mother lived and we might get an email back or a letter back saying, I'm sorry, I see that you've sent a letter to my mother. Um, I'm her son and um, she's passed six years ago, but can I help? And then we might go back to the person who initiated the trace and saying, I'm sorry, we're sorry, but you're, we did not trace your birth mother. She's passed, but it appears you have a sibling. Mm. Um, and what would you like to do next? And, we have social workers, we have 12 social workers on our team here who are facilitating tracing mostly. They're tracing birth parents or they're tracing children and um, they assist and guide and mediate between two people when when, they, when contact first happens. Because we're finding uh, when, when a person finds their birth parent or when they find a sibling, um, they don't want just the name and, de- and address, they want to be helped and assisted maybe can I write a letter and you can give that letter to the person or um, I just want to give you some information about me first yeah. before we start anything. So we mm. facilitate that. Sometimes people just want a break to process what they've just heard. And again, we're happy to do that. Mm. Or when they find a parent and a sibling, uh, because I imagine that happens uh, quite often too, but uh, it can be quite a, an emotional experience for people. Absolutely. It's, it's a very emotional journey uh, and we respect that. Mm. Like, uh, and so, so, so surprisingly emotional for some people themselves uh, who have perhaps thought for years on end, uh, I'd love to know who I am, where I'm from, who my parents were, etc. My backstory, if you like. Uh, and then when they get to that point, um, they think, oh my God, can I go ahead with it? Yeah, they, they, they can do that. And sometimes they may hear that their birth parent doesn't want contact or the child that they adopted and they put their details doesn't want contact. And that can be hard to deal with as well. But people do change their minds. You know, we've had lots of people come to us and say, you know, a year ago I put up uh, details on the contact reference register that I didn't want contact. Well, now I've just been through a difficult life experience. I've, I've come out the other side of cancer and I've, I've just had a different perspective on things. I think I would like to have contact from my adopted, the child I give up for adoption because I'm, I'm open to it now or I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to hear about it now. You know, people mm. change their minds as they go through life and as events come and go in their lives. We can all change our perspective as we go older and see things in context. Mm. Uh, and then there's so much to take in, but taking the initial step, quite possibly the hardest step of all, I gather. Absolutely. And um, it is in a website, and I know it's an electronic process, and some of your listeners might go, oh my God, I just don't like using websites, but you might need some help. It's, it's not that complicated once you get started. You'll need to have an email address just to create an account. So you create your, your account and you get an email to that account just to, to start the process off. And from there on, you can decide what you want. That's birthinfo.ie. Do you want to um, do you want to search for your birth information? Do you want to um, put your name on the contact preference register, or do you want to start the tracing process? And usually, it goes in that order where people uh, 
search for birth information um, and then maybe want to uh, put their name in the deta- on the contact person's yeah. register and then finally initiate a trace. So once you start that process off, that's the hardest step. And we're encouraging people to do so now because we don't have a backlog to deal with. So the response would be within the timelines that are set out in that act that was put in place a year ago. Um, and it, it's, again, it, you may need some help with it. And we're just, because we, we know now that we're dealing with, particularly with birth parents, and maybe the people that we've been keenest to contact because we know that they will be, you know, in their, in their late, later stages of life and may be reluctant to, uh, to start this process now. So they might need some help in just creating accounts and saying, you know, where, where, they, where they were when they, when they had their baby. Um, and, um, and and putting in that information would be really helpful. But it, it's definitely worthwhile, and we're happy to assist wherever possible. Yeah, and if you receive a, a tracing application, uh, how far will you search? How wide is the trawl? Um, will you search uh, abroad? Will you search the UK? Will you go as far as the United States or further afield? So we have access to lots of records in Ireland and in the UK, not so much overseas. Um, be outside of the uh, outside of Ireland, but but we are getting more and more records coming in. Like we've at least three sets, big sets of records coming to us in the next six months, for example. From uh, and that's part of that act as it allows us the adoption authority to take ownership of new records and digitise them. But when a social worker starts a trace, they will have got access to lots of registers in Ireland, um, the General Records Office, the Client Identity Services, PPS numbers, lots of sites like that to initiate the trace um, and it, 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 they also provide guidance and support as that process goes on. When the tracing request comes in, a social worker will meet with the person who's starting the trace. What have you done to now? What, what records have you searched? How far did you get? And then they're talked through the possible outcomes. You mightn't find somebody. You might find somebody and they're deceased. You might find a sibling. You might find the person, your birth mother, but they don't want contact. So we walk them through the various scenarios to prepare them for the possible outcomes. And then when information comes back, um, again, we give time to process that information. Some people might think, OK, I didn't expect that my birth parent was going to be dead. Um, I'm just after hearing now from you that I've got a sibling. I didn't know that that's how I was going to finish. So I just want to I want to take a break from this process and think about that. Because that's a lot of information to take in, you know, that have had mm. loads of hopes and they'd have worked out what they were going to say and talk about their life and has it been successful or not. Um, and then not to get that chance to, to say that is, is, is a lot to deal with and a lot to process. Mm. So our social workers are trained in, in, in that particular area of, of dealing with that kind of, of, of traumatic news, if you like, mm. um, and supporting and guiding people on that tracing journey. Yeah, and I'm sure every story is different uh, as well. Uh, I, I'm sure some people find it, the process more straightforward than others. They do, yeah. Uh, they, they do find it more straightforward. Some people just come to us and say, give us the contact details, I want to do it myself. Um, and, you know, some people are more matter-of-fact about it, but other people it is deeply emotive and deep, you know, really deep within the person um, to make that contact with your birth parents and to find out more about your early life for even to look for medical information because we've had a group of people coming to us looking for medical information. I've a kids in cancer. I'm just wondering, is that in my family or, or is there any other information in my medical history that you could give to me? Um, because sometimes that can be helpful. Um, and uh, 
we're, we're happy to assist in any way we can to get that information. Mm. Um, Yep. Yeah, and particularly uh, all the more so difficult, uh, I suppose, uh, as well uh, for people who were forced to hand over babies. And God knows uh, there are so many people. It's uh, one of uh, the more shameful periods of Irish history. Uh, you're looking to hear from people, who, uh, as you say, uh, call them at birthinfo.ie. That's correct. Yeah, we're more than happy to help um, to, to with people who want to put in an application and um there's also a phone number on our website, just on the adoptionauthority.ie if you want to. Uh, sorry, just I don't have it in front of me right now, but all of the information you need is birthinfo.ie. When you go there, you'll actually see a list of all the institutions um, that we have records for already. And um, when you click on a particular adoption society or guild or mother and baby home, it'll say who to apply to, either the Adoption Authority of Ireland or to TUSLA. Some people put in applications to both agencies just to make sure that, uh, to, to, to maximise their search, we don't have an issue with that. Um, but but uh, some records are held by TUSLA, the Child and Family Agency, records that came through the health service or the Department of Health, whereas the adoption records um, and through the agencies that we've held and agencies that are connected with the Department of Children, we hold. Um, and we've got a, like a large, large room um, in our offices, almost a floor of our building that is dedicated to records. Okay. That telephone number, uh, just uh, I have it here in front of me if people too want to write it down. It's a Dublin number 2309 300. So that's 01 300. Uh, and thank you indeed, Colin, uh, for joining us on the programme today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Colin O'Leary, who is the interim CEO of the Adoption Authority of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming uh, to us uh, this morning. Uh, Tony in County Louth emailing us uh, about uh, the dispute uh, with uh, the Garda Representative Association and uh, the Commissioner saying the Minister, Hella McEntee, says she's giving her very definite support to the Commissioner and very clearly outlines how this man is trying to return to the only agreed roster prior to COVID, which was a temporary situation. Tony says, I'd have hoped that the media would do the same and be more supportive of the Commissioner's position, which is fair and reasonable and can be a position to work from. The GRA are behaving very disrespectfully and in a bullying manner to get their way and retain a roster simply because it suits their lifestyles better. Not to improve policing. If uh, the conditional was not genuine, uh, I beg your pardon, if the commissioner was not genuine about this matter, he, he could simply apply for the Northern Ireland job. In all probability, he'd have got that job uh, which is probably what many people in the Garda Force are hoping for, says Tony in County Louth. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for your email, michael at lmfm.ie, our email address, a, a WhatsApp message about that, saying it's about time that the Gardaí stood their ground. Uh, this is Ellen, who's totally at odds with Tony. She says it's time the guards stood their ground. The Justice Minister wants more protection for uh, politicians. What about the Gardaí and the public? Uh, Ellen says, thanks uh, for that. Uh, again, somewhat cynical, but from a, a very different point of view. Uh, Deirdre says, Gardaí work very hard. The Minister should sit around the table uh, and speak to them. Drew Harris needs to talk to the guards and sort out the problem uh, and uh, that 
they should not be in this position. Thank you, as always, uh, Deirdre, for your message to the programme. Now, let's uh, go to the United States, Manhattan, and uh, the court uh, where Big Don has... uh, been very happy <laughs> with the charges, uh, which I, I don't think most people would be happy with. At least he sounded very happy when he was speaking to reporters after the proceedings yesterday. We very much appreciate the judge's decision today, or his statement today, on statute of limitations, which is a very big thing. It's a limited time period, and we did nothing wrong. And if you look at the statements, they showed that even in 2011, I guess the number is 258 million in cash. Uh, very strong company. I don't believe we really, maybe I wouldn't do a couple of deals or something, but I wouldn't have even needed to go to banks. Banks loved our business, they loved our deals, they weren't defrauded, they lost no money, they made money, they had the finest attorneys that there are. Frankly, their attorneys were better than my attorneys. And uh, they made a lot of money. And they considered me a very good client. I paid them back on time, on schedule. There was no default. They never even sent me a default letter. Not one, for years, never got a default letter. And there's no case here, there's no victim. The banks aren't a victim. The insurance companies are a victim. Everybody got paid. It's a terrible, terrible thing. This was for politics. Now, it has been very successful for them because they took me off the campaign trail. Because I've been sitting in a courthouse all day long Instead of being in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, or a lot of other places I could be at. This is a horrible situation for our country. It's never happened before. It's election interference. They're interfering with the presidential election of 2024. And the people of our country see it. But this was a big, big, uh, I, I say surprise, but it was a great credit to the court that the judge was willing to do this sort of overruled himself and I greatly respect that. Thank you very much everybody. Thank you. Are you back tomorrow? We may. I'd love not to. I'd love to be campaigning instead of doing this. Because we I built a great company. That's one thing people are seeing all the way back to 2011. And today it's much bigger and much better and even much more liquid. That was $258 million for a real estate development. That's a lot of money. 2011. Today it's much more than that. Much, much more. I built a great company and did great things for New York, and they should respect that. I've employed thousands and thousands of people in New York, and they should respect that. The Attorney General of this state is a disgrace. Letitia James is a disgrace. She's a disgrace to our country and to the state of New York. She should focus on all of the violent crime and the murders going on in New York, not on somebody that paid back the banks in full without a default, and in many cases paid it back early. Thank you very much, everybody. (laughs) There he goes. Uh, It's remarkable stuff, isn't it, really? Um, I'm sure there's a a very real possibility that we were listening to the next president of the United States of America simply because of the fact that he's the former United States of America. It's incredible stuff to hear him talking about the Attorney General being a disgrace and so on, or let alone the fact that uh, he's in court again on such shameful charges. Uh, That's uh, Donald Trump speaking to reporters outside of uh, the courthouse yesterday. Uh, Now, as you've been hearing this morning, uh, RTE back in the news uh, again, 
Uh, and uh, there's no good news, it seems, for RTE. Uh, there's been a 17% drop uh, in terms of customer experience. Uh, this is according to the Irish Customer Experience Report. And I, I take it um, that Brendan Moore is one of the people uh, who says <laughs> his experience of RTE has dropped uh, and is one of uh, that 17% uh, because he's been texting us uh, this morning about uh, the new host of uh, The Late Late Show. And I'm very surprised by Brendan's text because I haven't seen Patrick Keelty uh, on The Late Late Show if I'm to be honest, uh, because I've been away in that. uh, But anything I've read uh, has been very complimentary uh, and I would say the reviews uh, have uh, been consensual in saying that he's doing a great job, better job than the previous host. uh, And I think all of those reports have said, well, uh, they could do with better guests, but a good host. But that's not what Brendan thinks. Brendan says, as a result of inadequate accounting management at RTE, uh, the, the RTE Teletech service is to cease next week. Uh, this is the first gripe he has uh, with uh, the service from RTE. He says the dropping of Teletech is a disgrace as it was a form of information for 40 years. News, weather, sports, results, etc. Yes, there is still a demand for it out there and the RTE board and the CEO is destroying our national station. The man put in to present the late late who sits at a desk bullshitting every Friday night uh, why did uh, the RTA uh, directors uh, appoint this host? There's plenty of young talent about in Irish television and radio. Uh, Sinead of the 11 to 1 would do a great job. She does a great talk show. Uh, she'd make a great TV host. He, he says Patrick Keely is a turnoff, big time, uh, and that Bosco would do a better job. Well, as I say, I'm very surprised by Brendan's uh, text uh, and I don't have an opinion myself. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll see The Late Late Show this week. It'll be my first opportunity to watch it. Uh, but <laughs> it's not what I've been reading, Brendan. Thanks uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Catherine, thank you for your call to the programme. Catherine is sick hearing all of the news reports about what to expect in the budget. The simple truth is we're better off expecting nothing because then we won't be disappointed. When have we ever been pleasantly surprised by what was announced in a budget, she asks. Thanks for your message, uh, Catherine. Uh, another call to us uh, today from Tommy, who says, fair play to the Gardaí for sticking to their guns and going ahead with this industrial action. He's delighted that they didn't bow to political pressure to call off their action. And he says uh, they've just as much right to strike as any other sector and they've the same right as anybody else to fight for better working conditions. Well, they've no right at all to strike. Uh, you may think they should have the right, uh, Tommy, uh, but the truth of it is uh, it's uh, against the law for uh, Gardaí to strike, uh, which is why they're not saying it's a strike. <laughs> I think everybody would consider it to be a strike, but the Gardaí aren't saying it's a strike. They're saying uh, that individually members are withdrawing their labour coincidentally on the same day, the 10th of November. Jim, thanks for your call as well. Jim, in touch with us about the budget and all of the hype around the budget, as he puts it, and all of the promises that are being made by politicians. He says, this would just drive you crazy. We're being promised all sorts, but when it comes to the crunch, it'll be a giant damp squib because it'll be the same groups who are given everything and the squeezed middle who are holding up the country will be overlooked as always. 
Well, thank you, Jim, for your message to the programme. Somebody else uh, in touch with us. Uh, this is uh, a message for Brendan Moore about RTE and Patrick Keelty. And indeed, uh, the teletech service, which is ending today, uh, saying Brendan needs to take a chill pill or get a job, perhaps. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, James Andrade in touch with us as well, texting us to say, tell me what bank will give a loan to anybody without themselves checking the value of the properties. I don't hear the banks in court. Uh, to the common man, it looks like election interference. Uh, thanks uh, for, for that, James. Um, I'm a little bit... Uh, confused or bemused. Uh, I'm not sure what uh, that's relating to, but thank you indeed uh, for, oh, this is uh, the Donald Trump situation. Sorry, I got carried away with Patrick Keelty. James, thank you uh, for your text as always. If you want to make a comment on the programme, our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the budget is next week and uh, everybody will be hoping uh, that uh, there'll be more money for whichever sector they're representing. The health service uh, will certainly be looking at what is uh, announced in terms of uh, the budget next year, given how it was in receipt of £24 billion last year but ran over by somewhere between 1 and 2 billion, it seems, this year. At least that uh, appears uh, to be the situation. That's going to have an impact on all of uh, what is uh, announced next week and undoubtedly it'll have an impact on hospital services and health services in general over the course of 2024. Uh, Very worrying to see how many people are still on trolleys uh, in in September. Over 10,000 patients on trolleys. These are people who've been admitted to hospital but there isn't a bed available for them in the hospital so they wait in the emergency department on a trolley but they're so sick that they should be in hospital but that figure of 10,000 patients is over the course of the 30 days of September which may not be uh, that bad when you consider that uh, almost a, a thousand people were on, on one uh, on trolleys on one day alone uh, over the course of uh, the last year. So what lies ahead? Maeve Brehany is uh, the Assistant Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO, that's the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. And a very good morning to you, Maeve, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I take it your members are bracing themselves for another very hard winter ahead. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, unfortunately, they are, um, you referenced the overall national figures, but for your listeners, they'd be interested to hear that over 126 patients in OLOL went without a bed in September, which is nearly a 50% rise on the same time last year. And September is always a reliable indicator of how the winter is going to look for healthcare staff. So the situation that our members are predicating is based on these figures, um, as was the case in August. That indicates a huge red flag for, I suppose, for our members and for your listeners who will rely on those services. And I, I think Our Lady of Lourdes is one of the best performing hospitals in the country at this stage. It was, of course, historically one of the worst, but it's improved somewhat in recent years. Yeah, but unfortunately, you know, where improvements are made, there's still a point of crisis. If there's any other industry in the same crisis, risk assessments would be carried out, risk mitigation measures would be put in place. That's even more necessary and essential when we're talking about the deliverance of 
human healthcare services. Um, and unfortunately, with our meetings kind of overall nationally with the HSE and most recently with the Emergency Department Task Force, we don't believe that the HSE are willing at this point to put in the necessary measures um, you know, to deal with this issue. And there needs to be a serious mind shift from those in charge if we're to see improvements. Mm. Have they the wherewithal to do it? Uh, well, it, it, as I said, it, it needs that mindset shift. Um, patient-facing clinicians, doctors, nurses are raising this alarm, so they have to address it. You know, carrying on um, and not putting in focused risk mitigation, not curtailing services to meet meet basic uh, safety requirements, it, it's just not tenable. Mm. Have we enough hospital beds? Have we enough staff to run those beds? Uh, Is it possible to make beds available to patients when they present in emergency departments? Well, that's why we're saying other services that are non-critical would have to be curtailed. And that that goes through a full management task force. And we would sit down with them um, because the current levels, nobody is safe. You know, that's the problem. Um, And if, if... People, our members are worried for them themselves and the people they care for. So unless the state really act, it, they're basically just asking staff and patients to lower their expectations for the health service overall. And that's not acceptable. Mm. OK, uh, there's probably uh, as many people, even in the worst of sex circumstances. I mentioned that day um, last winter when there was a, a thousand people or thereabouts, just under a thousand people waiting on, on trolleys. But there's probably as many people uh, in hospital beds who've been clinically discharged. Is that one of the solutions? Well, early discharge or, or appropriate discharge and rounding is something that we have asked for. Those type of risk reduction measures that you're talking about are essential. That's what we're seeking to happen now. The current situation just isn't sustainable. So, you know, unless we have a real tangible effort from the HSE and the government, the situation is going to get worse. And I know that obviously you're focusing on OLOL and, and your listeners will be concerned with that. But the, like there's five overcrowded, the worst five UL and Limerick, mm. there's over 2,000 patients. Cork, mm. over 1,000. Sligo, almost 1,000. James in Dublin, over 500. And University Galway, over 500. So it's right across the board, and that's why it needs a whole-of-government and HSE approach. It can't be left to a few people. It has to be a focused approach by the whole of government. Mm. And Limerick uh, really is uh, worst uh, and has been consistently worst when it comes to waiting times and trolley figures now for a, a number of years. Uh, I'm sure people in Limerick dread the idea of going to hospital and that in itself is a real concern too, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and imagine people who, you know, at their sickest and most vulnerable need to be able to go into uh, a public hospital and expect a level of care and by the government not acting in HSE, not having proper mitigation measures in place. As we said, those people are basically told when you're most vulnerable and when you need us most, we don't have an answer for you. Mm. Uh, and when you go back over, uh, I don't know, um, 20 years back to Mary Harney, um, 15 years, whatever it was, uh, it'll never happen again. James Riley, it'll never happen again. Leo Radker, it'll never happen again. Stephen Donnelly, it'll never happen a- a- again. But you believe uh, that uh, we're walking blindly into this? Well, 
I would say we're not walking blindly in. We know exactly what's going to happen. There's a refusal to accept it and to act upon it, and that's what the problem is. It's not as if people don't know what's coming. These indicators are tried and tested, and you said if you look back over patterns, we can tell now, we've been saying this from July and August, these figures now are an indicator of what we're to expect in the winter. And unfortunately, unless the risk reduction measures that we're asking for will be introduced now, um, then not when it's too late, an, an inevitable adverse incident will occur. And then people will all, you know, rush to, to solve issues. But they have an opportunity to act now, mitigate for that risk mm. um, and protect the members that we serve and the patients that they care for. But it's almost predictable, isn't it? Uh, we'll be told you couldn't have predicted it. Well, well we're telling them. I'm repeatedly <laughs> I, telling them. No, uh, you know, uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a proven, yeah. it's proven um, statistics. Yeah, uh, I mean, every time we have uh, this crisis and uh, we as a country focus on um, the scenes that your members are experiencing uh, and trying to deal with and uh, help cope with very sick people in huge amounts, we're told it wasn't predictable. You, we didn't know people were going to get sick or that the population would increase or, or whatever it is. Yeah, and look, those, those people themselves will know that, that that's not a reliable argument. Things are deteriorating. If you look at um, in those figures that we've quoted for September, over 200 of those waiting on beds were children. Hmm. You know, it, that, that's totally unacceptable. Children deteriorate very quickly in a manner that being on a trolley and waiting for care affects patient outcomes. Children can rapidly decline when they're sick. The risks that children are being exposed to in hospitals are way too high. They're unacceptable for the members that care for them, for the patients themselves and their parents. So I, I know that, you know, parents groups would also be calling on on the minister to act Okay, uh, and what about your members? Uh, how, how do your members uh, ever manage to cope with the pressure that they're under when they're doing such important work? They're strong, resilient workers, you know, highly professional, highly trained. Um, but the problem is that pr- providing care for their patients becomes a risk to them and they have a license and a, a pin to practice. Um, and, you know, if anything goes wrong, they're called upon to answer for their actions. Um, and an element of that will be there's insufficient numbers of them to go around. So they're doing their very, very best over and above the call of action. And it's extremely stressful for them. They're bringing the, those issues home with them. They're worried about patients when they go home. They don't have an opportunity to switch off. So it's unacceptable. If they had proper staffing numbers, if they had proper support from the government... Um, you know, that would help to ease that pressure and allow them to do the job that they've trained and, and want to do mm. in a safe manner. Okay, money, um, obviously important. Uh, are you concerned uh, about uh, the overspend uh, in health services at the INMO and the implications uh, that uh, may result uh, from that? Well, the HSE overspending is something that we're concerned about, but if it was a focused effort to ensure that the spending that is done is done in an appropriate manner at, co- at um, patient-facing um, roles, then that would be a welcome, you know, you've heard of different things around consultants being used and, and large amounts of money, as we would see, being wasted when actually it's patient-facing 
and focused roles that need the the attention, a workforce plan, um, and th- that's where the money should be directed. Okay. Well, we've new targets uh, as well going into the winter, don't we? Um, uh, which in themselves uh, have been criticised. Uh, people over the age of 75 not having to wait more than 24 hours. That's a very long time to have to wait. It's an unacceptable time. As I said earlier, once patients are on a trolley, kind of over six hours, patient outcomes have been proven to, to be um, mm. you know, le- less positive and it affects patient outcomes. But even if you were to reference, you know, the ink isn't dry on those targets. We're only in September and they haven't even met them already. So it, that's where it's very worrying before those larger numbers that we periodically see in the winter come through. Yeah. Um, so so even, even at that meeting those targets, they've already failed. Okay. So that's where a concerted effort needs to be done now. All right, Maeve, uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining Thank us. You, Thank you very much. That's uh, Maeve Brehany, who's uh, the Assistant uh, Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, time now, as is usual around this time on a Tuesday, for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. We're joined uh, for the report this week by Garda Fiona Kerr at Navan Garda Station. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating, and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. And we're going to begin today with a report of a hit and run that occurred in Dundalk. Good morning, Michael. Um, on Monday the 25th of September at approximately 1.50pm on the Castletown Road in Dundalk, a pedal cyclist fell from his bike and was struck by a passing vehicle. Now, the car failed to remain at the scene of the collision and the male pedal cyclist, who was in his late 20s, was seriously injured during the collision. He was taken to Our Lady of Lords Hospital where he was treated for his injuries, which thankfully were not life-threatening. And Gardaí are appealing to anyone who may have witnessed this incident to contact them any road users and pedestrians who were in the Castletown Road area in Dundalk and surrounding areas on the afternoon of Monday the 25th of September between 1.45 to 2.30pm and noticed anything unusual, uh, they're asked to contact the investing guardie and anyone who may have camera footage, including dash cam of the area for Monday afternoon is asked to make it available to the guardie and anyone with any information which may assist the guardie is asked to contact Dundalk Garda Station or indeed the Garda Confidential Line if they prefer on one eight hundred treble six treble one. Next to R D, where Gardaí are investigating two separate burglaries. That's right. On Friday the twenty ninth of September at approximately six forty five PM, a house was broken into in the Riverstown area of R D. Now the injured party left their home to go for a walk and returned about forty minutes later and they noticed the side gate opened and lights on in the house. And when they went around the back they noticed the back door had been broken in and rooms had been ransacked and the shed was also broken into. So CCTV cameras show three males. The first male rang the doorbell and when there was no answer, he contacted the other two males by phone. Um, They were all very well covered up, so we have no further description of them at this time. So just to recap, it took place in the Riverstown area of RD on Friday evening the 29th at approximately 6.45pm and anyone with information should contact RD Garda Station who would appreciate the public's help on this. And the second burglary also occurred on Friday the 29th. This one happened in the Churchtown area of RD at approximately 7.20pm. And the injured party was alone in the house and noticed somebody go by the window. Thinking it was her husband returning, she went to the back door and was confronted with a male in dark clothing in the hallway. 
then she saw a second male who didn't enter the house. The alarm then went off and the two males fled and they were both well covered up. So again, we have no further description. So the guards in ID are investigating this and would appreciate any help from our listeners this morning. Okay, and I I think probably a very valuable lesson for all of us in there, and I'm sure that the lady in question was delighted that she had her alarm on, the perimeter alarm on, uh, and maybe something for us all to think about doing. We we go to Kells, uh, where Gardaí are uh, 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 investigating a theft. Yes, this incident occurred over the weekend, sometime on Saturday or Sunday at Dulane in Kells. So the injured party returned after being away for Saturday night and on his return he noticed the smell of heating oil and on closer inspection he could see the oil filter had been removed and oil taken from his tank. So this was a significant loss to the injured party and with people filling up with oil now with the colder weather approaching this type of crime may become more frequent. So take steps to make sure it's more difficult for these thieves. Um, Get a lock for your tank and maybe set up a sensor light. But with regard to this incident, if anyone listening this morning has any information, again, it occurred either Saturday or Sunday last in Dulane in Kells to please contact Kells Gardaí. OK, we've another theft uh, to conclude on. Uh, this uh, occurred in Drogheda. That's right. On Tuesday the 26th of September, that's this day last week, at around midday, Gardaí received a call to a construction site at Scotch Hall in Drogheda. Scaffolding and cable wire had been taken from the site. Now, a van was observed reversing into the yard, cutting the chain to gain access and taking the items. The scaffolding and cable wire were worth a significant amount. Uh, There were no number plates on the van used, so if anyone saw a van with no number plates driving around the vicinity of Scotch Hall, please contact Drogheda Gardaí. Okay, thank you indeed, Garda Fiona Kerr of Navangarda Station, and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, before we leave you today, let me bring you some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. Uh, I was reading out uh, (laughs) Brendan's list of complaints uh, from teletext to Patrick Keelty uh, a little bit earlier on. Uh, I'm not sure who's been texting us since, but they say, good man, Brendan, I'm on the same page as you. Well, thank you indeed uh, for your message. I I don't think it's one of those teletext pages that you're on, uh, but you're on the same page uh, as Brendan uh, because uh, I suppose it is historical... uh, or uh, of sorts at this stage now uh, because uh, it's been relegated to history. Uh, thanks uh, indeed uh, for that. Thanks to, to Claire who's been in touch with us. Claire feels that if there's an election next year we can expect a budget bonanza next Tuesday where they'll promise us everything uh, in return for our votes. We'll see. Uh, You could say uh, that could be some of uh, the things that are being uh, taken under consideration at the moment. Liam in touch with us about the budget as well and saying what they give with one hand they'll take away. But the other, the government has no real idea of how hard-pressed people are and they're not doing enough to help. More is needed to tackle the problems in the health and housing sectors. How can we trust the government will deliver this time around? Uh, We'd a text uh, that uh, came to us actually yesterday, just as as we were going off air from someone who said, uh, Michael, you would want to be on the Dublin to Drogheda train at peak times. Every day, it's completely packed and that's because they won't put on enough carriages. It's just not fair on people who are working all day and standing like sardines in a tin coming home from work on packed trains. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, It's uh, certainly an expensive tin to be standing 
on like a sardine. Uh, Sally says, we were promised the world in the run-up to the budget. Let's see what they actually deliver on. Personally speaking, she says she wants to see them making inroads in housing and the health crisis before she'll have any confidence in the government to affect real change. Tommy. Thanks for your call as well to the show today. He says that the government could win themselves a lot of fans in this budget by getting rid of the USC once and for all. People are sick and tired of paying it. Uh, well, it takes us back probably or possibly to uh, the comment earlier on from Liam who was uh, talking about giving it with one hand and taking it away with the other because I think we're to see a small reduction in USC uh, but we might also see a small reduction in P or SI uh, in order to pay for budgets um, or, or for pensions I beg your pardon but thanks uh, Tommy for that. Uh, thanks as well to Anya who feels college fees and education costs are something that need to be urgently addressed. I think uh, we're to see uh, some movement on that, Anya. She says uh, the cost of it cripples families, uh, especially when there's one or more children uh, who are going to college. Thank you indeed if you've been in touch. That has to be the final word in our programme today because our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching. Chris was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme. Tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.